Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, are you sure that seeing a horror movie is a good idea for our first date? Oh, yeah. Cloud You with a Chance of Mincemeat is the best rage virus chainsaw movie since The Bloodsucker Proxy. I'm just not really a big fan of this kind of thing. Well, you know, if you get scared, let me know. I'll put my arm around you, and you can press your body against me if one of the infected amputee pumpkin heads seem like they're about to leap off the screen at you. Well, okay. Oh my god, look at that. There's one on the other side of the door. Don't open the door. No, 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 Greg, you are disturbing the people around us. I'm just... Maybe if I just look through my fingers... Oh, no! It bit him! She has to kill him now. She has 20 seconds. Ah! Will you stop crying like a little child? This is just a movie. No, 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 no. Not the closet. Run away from the closet. He's in the closet. What's that smell? Greg, God, did you have an accident? Of course not. Who who would lose control over their physical functions just because an infected serial killer robot fish just bit someone's throat? (laughs) Have you ever seen a horror movie before? Yeah, Pete's Dragon. Are you kidding me? The new one. It has action, peril, and crude language. Check the rating. Okay, I'm out of here. Wait. Would you stand at the door and watch me run to my car and make sure rage zombies don't get me? No way, Stinky. You sit here and wait until I'm gone. The rest of you listen to this show about horror. And now, winning rave reviews for his performance as Marty Kruger, Freddy's brother, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it's not a big role. Marty Kruger owns a donut and pastry shop. You almost miss him in a lot of the movies. But actually, uh, the performance that I'm giving is very detailed and nuanced. Yeah, so we are talking about horror uh, today. Let's lay our cards on the table. I routinely trap people and remove jigsaw puzzle-shaped chunks of their flesh when they fail my sadistic tests. No, actually, that's not me laying my cards on the table. My cards on the table are I'm pretty much the guy in the intro. Nobody will go see a scary movie with me anymore because I'm such a little baby. Uh, my, my son my son will not do that. My son and I have had similar conversations where he said, Will you stop that? Uh, Bill Curry and I have had similar conversations. Uh, Will you please stop making that noise? Uh, I just don't do very well with these. So I'm fascinated by people who really seek these experiences out. I would love to see The Babadook or It Follows. or I mean, they sound like great movies when I read the reviews of David Edelstein, but I mean, I'm not going to see them because uh, I'd be too scared. So let me tell you who's here with us today. In fact, David Edelstein is here with us. He's the film critic for New York Magazine, for NPR's Fresh Air, and for CBS Sunday Morning. Also with us, Kendall Phillips, a horror film expert and historian, author of Projected Fears, Horror Films and American Culture, uh, and Steve Schlossman, a professor of psychiatry. I'm going to need that at Harvard, uh, Harvard Medical School and a fan of all things horror. He's the author of Zombie Autopsies. Later, we're going to be talking to Ma- Maggie Freeling, a journalist who's written about sort of the feminist and gender aspects of, uh, or lack thereof, maybe, of the horror genre. But David Edelstein, since we're old friends, I'm going to begin with you. Um, you 
and I are similar in very many ways, but in some ways we're not, and this is one of them. As a very young soul, you began venturing out into the single-screen movie palaces uh, of Hartford and seeking out really, truly terrifying and gory movies. Uh, mention one or two of them, and then tell us, what, what were you responding to? What were you seeking? How are they speaking to you? Well, there was um, Night of the Living Dead, which I saw at uh, UConn in stores, was a seminal experience for me. Also, uh, the Hammer films uh, with Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Dracula, and Frankenstein films, as well as the um, as the Universal classics, which I would stay up and watch Chiller Theater, uh, you know, at seven, eight, nine years old, Saturday nights, 11.30, Channel 40, or uh, or thereabouts. Does that still exist, Channel 40? Uh, no, or is that long gone? I think it's long gone. Okay. Well, <clears throat> yes, UHF is long gone. Anyway, um, I think I'm, I, you, I don't want to. I don't want to piss on West Hartford, but it, it was kind of an awful place to grow up in the '60s. Not because it was beset by all the problems that we were surrounded by, all the social problems, the racial unrest, the political unrest, but in fact because it wasn't. And one of the great things that we've learned horror can do is is something called the revenge of the repressed. Uh, I was surrounded by people who were, I felt, in denial of what was going on and a lifestyle, a suburban lifestyle, that seemed to be in denial of nature itself. So I actually went to these movies for what I perceived as a slice of reality, all the stuff that you couldn't say, all the stuff you couldn't admit to, all the stuff that you, you dreamed about that, that were pushed aside. In, I, I mean, in some ways, it was closer to the, the over-hygienic <laughs> 50s where I, where I grew up in the suburbs than, than the 60s for the rest of the country. So that's, that's what horror meant to me. Um, Steve Schlossman, i got to go right to you. I mean, look, we have a professor of psychiatry right there. I never th- thought about it the way that David just said it, the notion that, in fact, this is an, an opportunity to kind of get under the phony veneer of society and kind of see how things really are working. Is that a, a concept that you're familiar with as an expert on horror and as a professor of psychiatry? And a horror fan, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's one of the reasons. In fact, it's probably the most cited reason that folks will talk about their love of horror. I mean, some people will say it's you know they love the the thrill and sort of making it through the thrill and you know similar to riding a roller coaster. But a lot of people will say that it gets across these very difficult to talk about ideas in fairly explicit ways, but in displacement. So you get to talk about a war without actually having war. War with the zombies in Night of the Living Dead is not Vietnam, but it might as well be because it seems like something we ought to be able to solve, but we we can't. We turn and shoot them rather than just walking slightly faster in the other direction. Uh, so so ex- I agree 100% with what what David said. It's um it's what draws people in. So Kendall has has this has it been ever thus? I mean, we're certainly familiar with the uh, comedies of Plautus and Terence and Aristophanes. I don't know really know like a whole lot of like old. I mean, I suppose by the time you get to the 15th century, there's the Doctor Faustus story and things like that that are being told first through puppet shows and things like that before Goethe and Marlowe get a hold of it. Hold of it. I mean, has there always been something that we could identify as a fictional horror genre? Absolutely. The, the, the notion of the boogeyman goes back as far as recorded language. So at virtually every culture 
uh, in the world has had some version of a monster who's just outside the edge of society and usually stands as a kind of warning post, right? Do not Kendall, go into the Kendall, woods. Don't violate the sacred place. Cave, yeah. cave paintings. Cave paintings, too. Yeah. You can even Absolutely. go further back. No, as Sorry, far, as go far on. as we can tell, as long as humans have lived together, they've created some version of the monster. And it's had a kind of social function, kind of keeping people in line, but also a kind of attractiveness. We want to know about that creature that lives in the woods. Otherwise, we wouldn't go in the woods, and, but we always end up breaking those taboos. I want you to say a little bit more about that social function, though, Kendall. In other words, uh, in certain civilizations, conjuring up a boogeyman, conjuring up something uh, that's extremely powerful and scary that I can then protect you from, you're saying that really was an agent of social control. Absolutely. I mean, you think about the Latin root for monster, it's the same root as demonstrate, and it is to reveal, but also to warn. And that's exactly what the boogeyman, I mean, you think of any of our, our monsters, they're people, so, so take Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a creature created because science went too far, it violated the laws of God, and that created this thing, and it now stands as a warning and a kind of protector of that boundary. And society seems to need those, and to the point my friends made earlier, that becomes one of the ways we as a society deal with our very real fears is by turning them into fictional narratives that we can uh, engage in a slightly safer and more distant way. So, yeah, obviously all of you have talked about this um, and will talk about this on the show. Um, David, that's the kind of the double-edged sword, right, that there's um, an incredible uh, offer of freedom and license in the way that you were originally describing horror. But there's also this kind of sense of you're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong, and therefore you're going to get got. Well, traditionally, horror has been seen as a very reactionary genre politically, and it has tried to enforce... Um, you know, as Kendall said, the Frankenstein monster is, uh, I mean, the modern Prometheus. Uh, it was the subtitle of Mary Shelley's book. It's the guy who, who took on God. Now, one can easily, though, turn that into a progressive message today. If we re- replace God with nature and we show uh, some horror, you know, plague, plague movies, zombie cannibal plague movies, or movies in which the earth or nature takes revenge on us for going too far in our science or, or being reckless about the environment, progressives can fall on this as well. It's, I mean, it, horror is very adaptable. Traditionally, it's been used for reactionary ends, but but sometimes these paradoxes are right in it. I, I, I would fall on those Hammer movies because they showed sex and blood, and they were, they were very much considered... Um, they were a lot of people thought of them as as signs of social decadence. You know, the heaving bosoms of the uh, of the heroines and and the bloodlust. In fact, if you look at them, they are profoundly reactionary movies. They are movies about f- essentially foreigners coming to invading England and stealing the women. And how this professor, this righteous professor, Van Helsing, played by Peter Cushing, arrives with his his crosses and his stakes and puts them and any women that they've infected in their places. So on one hand, you've got, you know, the kids, you know, grooving on on, you know, doing what they're not supposed to do by watching these movies. And on the other hand, you are getting these lessons that that, you know, shows you be careful what you wish for. So, I yeah. think if I could add to that point, yeah, sure. uh, if you think about the monster as a kind of warning sign, we, we create these monsters as horrible things, but then we say to people, look at that monster, it's horrible, 
which, which, which is both telling them it's horrible, but also creating the desire to look. I mean, we go to horror movies and we, we hide our eyes, but we always leave a little space to peek through because we want to see that horrible thing. There's a kind of, there's a desire to see the thing that we're not supposed to see that I think feeds into exactly the point that David's making. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, and all, I'm, sure, I'm sure that Steve will, will contribute more to this idea, but, and I'd, I'd love him to say something about the whole fear of reproduction that goes through so many, uh, in the way that the old fairy tales were uh, essentially could, could be said to be about children's separation from their parents. It seems to me that a lot of, of modern horror tends to have to do with reproduction of, of children sort of coming into their sexuality and the, the horrible things that could, you know, the allure of it and also the horror of it at the same time. Yeah, so the, the message there, this is why I think the average age, if, if you look at what few studies have been done, the average age that kids see their first horror film that they remember fondly tends to be around age 11 or 12, which usually means that you're you're sneaking it in, like your folks don't know you're watching it. I, I snuck into Dawn of the Dead when I was 11 years old. told my parents I'd seen The Jerk, by the way. They couldn't figure out why I needed a ride, a ride home. They said, is Steve Martin really that scary? Yeah. <laughs> Had to come clean. Um, so, yeah, th- those are movies about change, and that change is um, has been been a uh, kind of profoundly unsettling experience since we've been human. So just like we've been telling stories since we've been human, we've been telling stories about things that freak us out. And there is a, a kind of, um, as you guys pointed out, a reverse subversiveness to it, where on the one hand, you're, you're sneaking into an R-rated movie. The flip side is you're sneaking into an R-rated movie that's basically telling you to behave. Uh, which is fascinating when you think about it. Well, you know, I have to sort of inject uh, my some of, one of my pathetic stories here. I mean, the movie that broke the camel's back with me and my son, where he would not go see movies like this with me anymore. And David, you're going to sneer at me so much because this is kind of a nothing <laughs> a nothing movie. It's not even really that scary, and it's certainly not a good movie. It's a movie called Godsend, which is a, about a cloned child. Robert De Niro uh, is in it. I think Greg Kinnear is the father. And mm. and and I don't know. And But it's definitely it's what you guys are all talking about. It's definitely what Steve was just talking about. Yeah. It's about change, right? It's about, and David, you're talking about reproduction. Well, this is a different kind of reproduction. And it's basically yes. a movie that says don't do this. this. Look what's going to happen. You'll get an evil clone. Yeah, I mean, that's what... Look, this goes through... <laughs> there are so many horror movies in which this is either the subtext or the uber-text. I mean, in uh, uh, It Follows, which is, I think, one of the more... One of the scarier movies of the last few years is very explicitly about people... About kids, mostly, being hunted by people who... Uh, have been infected sexually, and any time if they want to pass the curse along, they have to sleep with someone in order to do it. I mean, there's, I mean, this is naked, and no pun intended, a, a, a naked depiction of of this fear. And you know, we're surrounded. We we live in a hypersexual culture, but at the same time, a, as we know, we can't seem to reconcile our puritanical impulses with our addiction to sexual imagery, and it comes out in horror. So, Kendall, uh, you know, we're talking right now about sort of modern things, viruses and clones and uh, things that can actually sort of set off various kinds of horrific situations. But in in fact, if you go back 125 years, uh, 150 years, it's the supernatural version of this is the thing that's real to people, right? That the horror that rose up, say, post-Civil War and into the Victorian era, which was often very supernatural in nature, wasn't necessarily regarded so much so fanci- so much as a fanciful statement as one about what would happen when this thin veil was pierced 
No, absolutely. It's worth recalling, you know, that the first films were screened in 1895 and were starting to circulate in America by 1896 and 1897. This is around the same time that there's a widespread movement in the spiritualist movement, right? So that people after, particularly after the Civil War, really believed in mediums and seances and they could contact the dead and you had spirit photography. And so film is emerging at about the same time, and, and no surprise that the imagery they're using to portray ghosts and witches and curses is very much the same imagery as is circulating in the culture. So it seems to be, in some ex- to some extent, sort of back to the earlier point, the trauma of the Civil War led people to searching for answers, and the answers they were searching for were among the dead. It was sort of that was it also connected? Was it also connected to the very medium of film, do you think? I mean, the so-called magic box that, that film was? Oh, that's absolutely right. So if you think about it, the first time people are seeing moving pictures, they're not narratives. They're just films of people leaving a factory or a train arriving, and they're, they're often called living pictures. And so there was a kind of uncanny marvel and the other point of that is, when people first saw movies, they weren't in theaters. Movie theaters didn't really pop up until about 1905. So for the first decade, people saw these at magic shows, or they saw them at state fairs, or carnivals, or county fairs. Uh, just along with any other kind of vaudeville act, the living picture would be another sort of marvelous spectacle. Only later would they start to need to develop narratives, narratives specific to films, and one of the places they went to find those narratives were among Gothic literature, belief in ghosts, folk tales, superstitions. That became so these kind of these two things kind of arose at the same time and very much shared the same sort of genetic material. Um, you know, one thing that I was wondering was whether we have our taxonomy and morphology pinned down here. So, Steve Schlazman, one thing that I was wondering is: is everything that's really scary horror? Is everything that's really horrifying? Horror. I, I mean, I don't know. I think about a movie like one of the scariest movies I ever saw was Don't Look Now, uh, the Nicholas Rogue movie, and it really yeah. scared the d- daylights out of me. I don't. Uh, is that horror? I mean, it, you don't see a lot of blood. You see, you know, uh, a dwarf in a red raincoat running around a lot. I, I mean, there's there's barely any blood in you know a more modern movie, Blair Witch. But but you know, so you don't have to see the blood and the gore for it to to be horror. Yeah, well, from my reading of the literature, and also if you look at the neurobiology of it, folks will debate this and come down on this notion that um, there has to be a sense of, of dread and uncertainty. So, if, you know, the kind of classic scary movie where you know the villain from the very beginning to the very end, you know everything about the villain. So um, Silence of the Lambs or Cape Fear, the original Cape Fear with, with Robert Mitchum, it's, you know he's a bad guy, you know he's a villain, but it's not so much horror. It's more in the kind of thriller category, at least that's what folks have argued. Horror, like in It Follows, you don't know what this thing is. You just know what it wants to do, and you know mostly how to get rid of it, but you're learning about it as it goes forward, which I think is a much more scary uh, circumstance. The Conjuring doesn't get scary at all until that witch, I mean, doesn't stay scary until that witch shows up. Once that witch shows up, then you know what you're dealing with. And at that point, um, the pattern recognition kind of makes more sense. You you start to recognize what you're seeing, and you... um, you kind of settle in for a different kind of experience. David, I totally buy uh, the thing that he's yeah. saying. Go, well, go ahead, yeah. Can I, uh, I'd like to talk about a really important text in horror films and the horror genre. It's a movie that was made in 1966, I'm sure everyone knows it, by Peter Bogdanovich, and it's called Targets. Uh, I think you can say that it's really the first 
truly modern horror film, and it juxtaposes two different kinds of horror. Let me just say that uh, the writer Donald Twitchell once said that argued that horror is not really a genre. It's a series of motifs. And here you have two motifs at war with each other. You have Boris Karloff playing an aging horror star who comes to a screening of what's going to be his final film, a premiere at a drive-in. And at the same moment, a guy very much patterned on Charles Whitman, who climbed the the Texas Tower and picked off people at random, uh, is goes to that same drive-in. And as we see the ghosts on the screen in this traditional horror, horror film, and he even at one point tells the old story about appointment in Samara, which is a sort of wonderful, scary, but also kind of reassuring story about death having an appointment, a predestined appointment with this man's servant. Anyway, you have these, this juxtaposition of this old Gothic Grand Guignol horror with this really modern, insane, new kind of horror that, that you know, we saw in Texas, in Austin, Texas, for the first time, and, and God knows, you know, and, and, it's, and it's continued even to Newtown and, and beyond. And, and it, the, Bogdanovich was posing the question kind of heavy-handedly, but, but in a way that we can't get, what is horror? What is, how do we account for this modern horror versus the old classic horror? Hmm. You guys want to respond to that? Uh, I, mean, I, would, I would say I think they're definitely, David's exactly right, there, there's a substantial shift. I, I would actually pick Psycho as my beginning of that turning point, but where you move away from horror as some kind of external thing, whether it be from beyond the grave as in the universal gothic period or beyond the stars as in the creature feature, but it becomes much more internalized. It's much more mm-hmm. human's capacity for evil. And so you see that in Psycho. You certainly see that in, in Target. Um, I, I think you also see it in, I think, probably the film that really shifted the gear fully, which was Night of the Living Dead, where the zombies are the monsters, but the real danger are the people trapped inside the house. All right, we're going to take a pause here. Uh, maybe we can go out just to scare you a little bit with a, a clip from Psycho since I just got mentioned. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more uh, about why certain things scare certain kinds of people. People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears and the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. I am sorry. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course, I've suggested it myself. But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. You really believe that you can bring life to the dead? That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. 
All right. Uh, that, of course, is from Frankenstein. Uh, with us to talk about horror is David Edelstein, film critic for New York Magazine, NPR's Fresh Air, and CBS Sunday Morning. Kendall Phillips, horror film expert and historian, author of Projected Fears, Horror Films in American Culture. And Steve Schlossman, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a fan of all things horror, the author of The Zombie Autopsies. So, Steve, I just want to talk a little bit more about sort of how how our psyches line up with this stuff. Like you guys are all members of this really cool club that I would love to belong to, you know, like I'd really love to see it follows. Although nothing anybody has said so far has made me think that I could handle it. So, so what do we know about the kind of person who can watch and will seek out this kind of thing as as entertainment, as opposed to wussies like me who can't? (laughs) There's all sorts of different kinds of wussies. So you don't have to worry about that. That's that's the sort of shrink in me talking. Here, here's here's what we know: uh, folks who like horror films are scared. They enjoy being scared. And in, in the few studies that have been done, you can hook folks up to uh, biometric readings, so you can see if their heart rates go up, their breathing rate goes up, their skin conductance goes up because they sweat more, so there's more salt. All those things suggest autonomic arousal, a fight or flight response. If you like a horror film, you tend to enjoy, or you tend to get frightened, and then you tend to enjoy being frightened. There are lots of people who go to horror films who get frightened but don't like the experience. And then there are other folks who go to horror films who say, eh, it doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. Those folks, by the way, fall more out on the kind of sociopathic spectrum. <laughs> um, they, you know, the, it's kind of the Hannibal Lecter, I ate as whatever, you know, my pulse didn't go above 25, whatever that great line is. The... It turns out that when you then take those people who are frightened but who say, gee, that was really fun to be frightened, and you ask them what it was that made them frightened, and you can do this with standardized assessments um, usually, uh, using like a Likert scale, like I liked it a whole lot, a little bit, not so much uh, that kind of scale. What they'll say is it's not just that they liked being frightened. They liked asking themselves why they were frightened. So it's a metacognition. Um, it's not just thinking you're scared. It's thinking about why you're scared, thinking about being scared itself. That exercise, that solving of the puzzle is nearly addictive to our brains. We, we love that. Uh, we love trying to figure out why that beagle with cat eyes looks freaky because cats are cute and beagles are cute, but they shouldn't be together. Or the clown down in the woods in South Carolina, for that matter. Why is that freaking everybody out? Because clowns don't belong in the woods. So those kinds of puzzles are attractive to us who like horror films. Yeah. We've almost reached the point where you can't even say that clowns don't belong in the woods. They're just there all the time. <laughs> it just seems like that's that's something we've kind of lost control of. It's just a different kind of clown. <laughs> so, Kendall, I'm going to have you and David talk about uh, an incredibly popular modern horror series, and that is the one known as Saw. So, I mean, talk about movies that I would just never in a million, million years see. But, you know, one of the things that I think you're all kind of suggesting in different ways is that when people seek out an experience like this, they're also exploring things about themselves. They're asking questions uh, about about what would happen to them in a situation like this. And, Kendall, I know that you feel as though Saw in particular and that kind of film is a kind of what would you do to get out kind of experience. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the main point of Saw... So, so what's interesting about Saw and the other torture porn films, as they're sometimes called, is that they reverse the usual horror film narrative. Most horror films are someone's being stalked, 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 killer pops up, goes away, pops up, goes away, final confrontation, someone dies. Torture porn actually reversed it so that you more or less begin with someone trapped, and the question is, how do they get out? So it's kind of the reversal of the getting away, It's you start trapped. 
And in some ways, the real question, particularly for the Saw movies, was how far would you go to survive? What are you willing to do to yourself, to other people, to survive? For me, the fact that that comes out in 2004 and this relatively low-budget film becomes such a huge phenomenon, I can't help but read that in relation to September 11th in 2001, where, in essence, we as a country ask the same question. How far would we go as a nation to survive? What kinds of things are we willing to do? And, and David, I don't know whether you uh, feel like torturing that analogy. Uh, but um, Well, you know, Colin, I, I am actually credited with having coined the term torture porn um, in a 2005, a very modest 2005 essay in the New York Times. And really what I was doing was posing the question about these movies, what was the appeal? There is now a quite a respectable body of work about the Saw movies, which see a great deal in them. Uh, in, in part, it's what Kendall just said. There's also uh, what Jigsaw does. In addition to what you would do to get out of these problems, Jigsaw is also sort of calling a central question about our lives. Do we take our lives for granted? Are we wasting? He is a, a terminally ill man. And, uh, you know, are we wasting our opportunity to live? And he is he is punishing people. He is making them work for, you know, to to regain their own life and and the lives of their of their loved ones and and often they fail and they fail in extremely gruesome i mean there's also just the mechanical allure of of these various rube goldberg contraptions that take apart human beings bit by bit that you know bisect them and trisect them and disembowel them and and in in all sorts of kind of interesting ways uh, i have to admit that there's a lot more in Saw and and the series that followed, maybe than I had originally given it credit for. And, and Kendall, I mean, the other thing that we're, we're you're alluding to, and David has also written about, is the notion that the person doing this sees himself as a moral avenger, which also lines up kind of well with nine eleven. The notion that people who are doing things are doing things because they essentially see a corrupted society uh, in need of a very special and very violent kind of reform. No, absolutely. I think, and again, it goes back in some ways to our discussion in the earlier segment about the monster. In many ways, the monster is derived from our own moral codes and values. Uh, Frankenstein makes the monster because he wants to pursue science. Well, that's a good thing. Norman Bates becomes Norman Bates because he loves his mother. Well, that's a good thing. So uh, Jigsaw wants to push the boundaries of caring about your life and the question of the sanctity of life. That's a good thing. But again, in each of these cases, it goes just a little bit too far which is always our question. When do we take our own cultural assumptions and values that step too far, and then we become the monsters that we thought we were fighting? I want to ask each one of you about uh, something that you saw in one of these movies that really, really uniquely scared you. Uh, And Steve Schlossman, I'm going to begin with you because I know you've got a good example. It's the 1979 movie Salem's Lot. And I want to know what scared you and and why you think that thing in particular scared you so much. Uh, So it's it's so wrapped up in, you know, the context of nostalgia. So, So unlike um, David, I, I grew up in the 80s um, Reagan time where it actually truly was boring, I, I think, almost everywhere, especially where I grew up in Kansas City, in the suburb of Kansas City. So it was a very quiet place. Um, I remember watching that uh, made-for-TV show. There was, you know, the guy who played Hutch from Starsky and Hutch on it. Um, my sister was gone. My folks were out of town. I was home by myself, had my dog and my bowl of Doritos, my Dr. Pepper. And these are all the kind of accoutrements that people 
will will sort of reflect on when they talk about their first experience with being frightened in a really fun way. There's a scene in Salem's Lot, which I'm sure anybody who's seen it remembers, where the the two boys, the brothers, are going home and they do what every kid does in these, you know, from stories from Ray Bradbury forward and probably even before him. Obviously, they take the shortcut through the woods. Only one of the brothers makes it back. You, the viewer, sees that the little brother gets enveloped by something very, very dark. The screen goes black, and the kid kind of gets scolded for leaving his little brother behind. The parents look for him. The kid goes upstairs to his room, and then suddenly on the second floor, there's his little brother floating outside the window and scratching on it with this sound that sounds an awful lot like, you know, fingernails on chalk, and it's it's absolutely horrifying. I turned on every light in the house. I'm a nice, look, I'm a nice Jewish boy, and I was making crosses out of tongue depressors. That's, that's how scared I was. Um, but I loved it. Like, I couldn't I could not watch, and I've since gone back to that. And I've spoken at horror conventions and asked people, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? And you got these guys with, you know, pit bulls and tattoos and their Harleys, and they'll say, you know, The Extras, The Omen, or you know, some Rob Zombie film. And then I'll say, what about Salem's Lot? And they're all like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I just erased that from my memory. So these guys look like they would tear your throat out, can't talk about Salem's Lot. Hmm. All right, Ken, yeah, go, Kendall, how about you? Uh, for me, I'm probably about the same age as Steve, and the film that I snuck into, which I shouldn't have, was uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, and the sequence that in even now in my childish memory lasted for hours was when Jamie Lee Curtis is running to her neighbor's doors and banging on the doors as the killer Michael Myers is pursuing her, and she sees them close the blinds and turn off the light and she realizes that there's not going to be any help in the white suburban neighborhood she lives in. And as a kid growing up in a very similar neighborhood, there was a kind of shocking realization that, wow, all this suburban good neighbors might not come, might not be there when I need them if this thing ever happens. And, and you know, th- let me just pause with that one for a second and say that plays so well into the things that both David and, and I think Steve were saying about Night of the Living Dead, uh, which is that, uh, and, and for that matter, The Walking Dead on television, this incredibly now much more mass-marketed uh, zombie movie, which is that, you know, it really is kind of people, right? <laughs> that, that this whole system, you're watching the system where we're supposed to be able to take care of one another and have kind of some kind of structured or ordered reality. It just breaks down so easily. Yep. Oh, I say to people all the time, the scariest thing I do is drive on the interstate here in upstate New York. Um, <laughs> b- because you have to assume, as I'm zipping along at the appropriate 65 miles an hour and never more, that, that everyone else is going to do what they're supposed to do. They'll stop, they'll merge properly, they'll shift lanes. And, and that's a remarkably fragile uh, trust <laughs> that everyone else in their car is not drunk or crazy or just you know, wanting to have a good time. That's day-to-day life. Yeah. We right. live on those fragile communal bonds and just hoping that everybody knows to stop at the four-way stop, et cetera. Yeah. And if you see, see Steven Spielberg's uh, duel, then you realize that a <laughs> truck that you pass uh, can, in fact, turn out to have a, a, a basically a demonic avenger in it who's not going to let you uh, – who's, who's not going to put up with that. I, I have two – <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, that was realism, really, just pushed a little bit, yeah. uh, because road ra- instances of road rage. I mean, that that is, that's that duel is about ro- duel is about road rage, and it's really not so far fetched. Um, I just uh, m- let me just briefly talk about two movies. Night of the Living Dead changed everything for me. I was scared to leave the theater. It pulled the rug out of everything, and it was so much of what was in the air. Civil rights was a huge part of it. Um, the um, the Vietnam War was a part of it, our, our, and even you know this fear of plague. You know it was zombies, as as everybody knows, were 
were sort of Haitian, were, were bodies that were controlled by Haitian witch doctors and were not, you know, cannibalistic bearers of plague until Romero. In fact, he didn't even call them zombies. He called them ghouls. But now, now we call them zombies. Uh, so that changed everything. The other film that really frightened me on a much deeper level was uh, David Cronenberg's The Brood. And it has a, a wonderful thesis, or I guess I would say antithesis. Cronenberg made his name with these Revenge of the Repressed movies set in very sterile 50s-like environment in which people's sexual impulses tended to become concrete. They developed various appendages and... and, and but the brute, he took that and, and in, in the manner of many great playwrights, kind of turned it on it, turned it around because his hero or his anti-hero in the movie was a, was a psychiatrist who said, um, no, repression is the enemy. What we really have to do is move through our fears. You have to, he was sort of like an S guy. You have to get inside it and articulate it and scream it out to the point where it manifests itself on your body in boils or tumors or in the case of the woman in this movie, demonic babies that literally grow outside her womb and go out and like execute, pound to death the people that she hates, including her mother and her father. And the idea that a horror movie could do this could show us, oh, yes, it's about the revenge of the repressed, but it's also about going to the other side and reacting to that. That that taught me that this genre is incredibly elastic in the hands of a real artist and a philosopher like Cronenberg. And that movie, you know, haunts me to this day. So, Steve Schlossman, speaking of artists and philosophers, I got to ask you, you watch scary movies with George Romero, the guy who made Night of the Living Dead. I'm assuming he doesn't like peek through little gaps in his fingers and stuff like that. I mean, does he get scared of at, at oh, scary movies? Yeah, he does. Uh, George and I are pretty close. Um, he he does get scared. I mean, George also, by the way, loves westerns, so we'll go back and forth between westerns and um, and scary movies. And, and when he and I first became friends, he actually sent me a lot of movies and said, we're going to be pals. you got to watch these movies and call me up and we'll talk about them. So the first one he sent me was actually uh, the John Wayne movie, um, The Quiet Man. Hmm. Um, and that was obviously not a horror film at all, but he was asking me the question, you know, did he have to fight? That was that was the big question. But when watching scary films, uh, George and I presented um, Repulsion at the American Psychiatric Association. So, so that's we showed this Roman Polanski film about a you know gorgeous Catherine Deneuve descending into this murderous psychosis. But you still feel sympathetic to her. It's actually quite an accomplishment. And George, he's seen that movie probably thirty times, and he was still squirming in his seat as he was as he was watching it. Uh, so, uh, you know, like any fan of the genre, I think he enjoys the experience of being scared as much as he enjoys making those movies. Well, Kendall Phillips and uh, Steve Schlossman, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we have to address one more aspect of that, and that is the as- aspect of women in these films. Uh, Maggie Freeling is going to join us for that. David Edelstein staying. We'll take a break, and we'll be back. And she's in love with the creature from the Black Lagoon. My baby loves a Yeah, I kidnapped three tourists and joined them surgically mouth to anus forming a human centipede. And you know what? I'm hearing a lot of judging from you people. We all make choices. Okay, don't hate me for mine. Today's show is produced by the evil Dr. McPants and me, Kion Wolf. 
Our executive producer is Count Talarski of Elmwoodvania, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Lon Chaney Jr. Find all of our shows at wnpr.org slash Colin and visit the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. On tomorrow's show, 50 years of Star Trek. And now, back to Colin. It actually wasn't produced by the evil Dr. McPence. It's just a good horror movie uh, name. It's actually uh, Josh Nalea has produced today's show and want to thank uh, also Greg Hill for appearing in our intro. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, women uh, in horror movies. David Edelstein, film critic for New York Magazine, NPR's Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning, is here with us. Uh, yesterday, uh, I talked to Maggie Freeling, a journalist, a radio reporter, and the producer of the Guardian's podcast, What Would a Feminist Do uh, with Jessica Valenti? Now, this, this genre, it does often bother women, and it bothers women for a bunch of different reasons, but probably the the original one, the first one, is that notion of the damsel in distress, the helpless girl or woman who's screaming and not doing much else about the situation. So let's hear a little clip of Maggie talking about that. So Maggie, one of the stereotypes you talked about is that notion of the female who needs rescuing by the small, the, by the strong male. Let's, um, let's play a clip from Night of the Living Dead. We were riding in the cemetery. Johnny and me. This man started walking up the road, and Johnny kept teasing me and saying, he's coming to get you, Barbara. Why don't you just keep calm? And I looked up, and I said, could he? And he grabbed me. He grabbed me. I think you should just calm down. Oh, oh I screamed, Johnny! Johnny, help! And he ran and he he fought this man. And I got so afraid, I ran, I ran. Okay, so that's uh, that's almost a caricature of a woman who is uh, a, a no help at all and b borderline annoying. And, and I do wonder, Maggie, whether part of that also is the way in which horror movies have been. Uh, frequently used by their consumers. I mean, there's talk about a cliche. There's a cliche of, you know, on your first uh, date or second date, you take the girl to the horror movie. She'll feel scared. She'll want your arm around her or that right. whole thing. I assume that's part of the psychology of this whole genre, particularly in the early days of that genre, to create a sense of fear and vulnerability in the woman watching the movie. Sure, absolutely. And in these older movies that we see, King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Living Dead, it was during a time as well where women were supposed to be, quote, supposed to be helpless, and a man was supposed to take care of them, and they were in the home, and they just took care of the kids, but the man financially provided. So I think the tropes that we do see are exactly what you said. Although it does seem as though that maybe is a slightly antiquated one that you don't see as much anymore. I mean, you know, Sidney Prescott, the Neve Campbell character in Scream, she's sort of the opposite of that, right? She's the person who prevails over and over. Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, uh, another example. Uh, You know, the the person who who wins out. I mean, there at least seems to be a little bit of evolution against that old stereotype. Totally. So there has been an evolution. Now, some of the more common ones that we see are the evil demon seductress. These are ones like in the recent movie Jennifer's Body and Men in Black 2. There's the alien who's a Victoria's Secret model. That That is more of a typical one we see of women these days, the mm. seductress that seduces men to get her way. She manipulates men. She's deceitful. And so that is kind of one of those playing off of sexist stereotypes as well of women and the way women 
use their sexuality to deceive men. Often we also see the jealous, vengeful lover or the woman seeking revenge. There's a lot of those. We see women not necessarily killing because they're just evil, but killing because they're out to get revenge. A classic one of that is I spit on your grave. And there's the one of, in 1942, Cat People, the slogan is, Love brought out the inner animal in her. So we see things like that as well. So, David Edelstein, uh, obviously there's a lot going on with women in horror movies, and, and maybe they were open, you would know better than I, to charges of exploitation in the past. But mainly what it seems to me they're doing is what we've been talking about for the last hour, which is exploring various areas of anxiety, uh, especially about social change. It is remarkable when you look back at the classic, even the horror posters, I would say 50% of them, if not more, uh, feature images of unconscious women. I mean, I mean, the big the big visual motif was the monster carrying the the supine woman or the woman draped across the poster. That has vanished from horror, and it's well vanished because the idea of of the woman being seized by the monster and saved by the man is just. I mean, now it's almost gone to the opposite extreme, where where the women are saving, where Snow White is saving Prince Charming from you know demonic attack. But but it is a good thing. Horror movies are still reactionary. I mean, they're still um, uh, Twilight, for example. You know, was was written by a devout Mormon, and it still is about is a warning to a young girl. She longs for this this uh, vampire, but if he touches her, there's the threat of him ripping her to shreds. And if he impregnates her, she's probably going to die. And then there's a movie like Mama, which is a movie I liked very much, but is a profoundly reactionary movie. The heroine is Jessica Chastain, but in order to become the heroine, she has to give up this idea that she hates kids. She's sort of a punk, and she has to give up the idea that she hates kids and embrace motherhood fully in order to rescue two children from from a demonic ghost mother. So um, what... On the other hand, uh, I mean, the, the movie I've really talked about as as a real, I think, a great feminist. Well, there are two great feminist horror movies in the last few years. The Babadook is one of them. And um, that explores the dark side of motherhood with a lot more empathy. Uh, the demon kind of rises up out of the unconscious of a single mom played by this extraordinary Australian actress named Essie Davis who on some level despises her kind of oddball son. But she doesn't use the church to exercise this demon. She proves capable, like the vast majority of mothers, of acknowledging her resentment at at having responsibility for this kid and yet also keeping it at bay and and through, you know, through loving him. Um, and and then there are all these identical twins, Sylvia and Jen Soska, who have made a series of movies, the, the latest of which is called American Mar- Mary, in, in which they have a uh, a med school heroine who who um, takes surgical revenge on a rapist. And then she sets up shop as a as a good surgeon for women who want to make radical changes in their bodies. Um, these explore women. These explore issues that are so much more central to women's lives than the old style horror films did. 
Um, one of the things that, that Maggie and I talked about is also, you know, I mean, you don't even have to get that contemporary. But, yeah, you so you've got some of these women filmmakers. They're making films that are a little bit more friendly. Although, as you pointed out, there are other movies right now, like The Conjuring, which is, is very reactionary in the sense that it takes a historical event. Uh, the Witches of Salem, who we, you know, I think we all understand uh, were unfairly convicted, convicted and said, oh, no, they really were witches. Yeah. And, and also the mother is the most vulnerable member of that family. Uh, and the, the demon possesses the mother and the mother has to um, and, and the church has to come in and save the mother. Unlike the Babadook, the mother doesn't save herself, isn't shown as having the sort of strength or psychological or emotional complexity to be able to save herself from the demon, these two agents of the Catholic Church have to come in and exorcise the demon, which is, I mean, and, that, and that's an example of, uh, I mean, that, that is really the most reactionary kind of horror film. Whatever you believe or don't believe, the idea that, that it's only the church that can come in and exorcise the devil um, really was one of those things that, that uh, as was said, I think by Steve was used to sort of keep people in line. Yeah, they train for this stuff too. They should they should do it. So <laughs> yeah. so we only got about a minute or two left. But I mean, you know, let's go back a little ways to a movie like Carrie. Now, you know, finally we this is a movie with a strong female protagonist when there wasn't maybe quite that much of that going on in horror. But it's also a movie about sort of saying here's what happens when women really kind of cut loose and become who they are. I mean, do you see that as a reactionary movie or a statement about female power? No, no, because actually what happens in that movie, don't forget the the one of the most the equally important character in that movie is Carrie's mother, who is a religious nut and who teaches her that all her bodily emissions, all her bodily functions are evil. And the only way that Carrie and and it's this repression that creates this this sort of demonic force in Carrie that finally er erupts at that that prom. And Stephen King really deserves a lot of credit for making a movie that did use some of those reactionary tropes, but also was about, as we've said, the revenge, what we started with, the revenge of the repressed. All right, David Edelstein, time for me to clamber back into my crypt. And uh, thanks very much for joining us today. I'm going to take you to a horror movie. I'm going to take you to a horror movie. Just hold my hand. Josh Nalea, thanks for producing today's show. Wilfie, thanks for helping out on the board. No, 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 don't go in there. You're going to get slaughtered. Hey, you're blowing my cover. You... You can hear me? Yeah, and I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't give my victim the heads up. Hey, since I've got you here, you've got a little schmutz on your chin. Oh, okay. Did I get it? No, wipe on your left. Your other left. (laughs) Now did I get it? Uh, yep, gone. Hey, thanks. Anytime. Now you get back to work. (laughs) 